John chapter 7, 53 to John 8, verse 20. I'd hope we'd get up to John 8, 30, but when studying this, I recognize we wouldn't get that far. So let's turn to John chapter 7, verse 53. Here is the fifth thing in our outline, the woman taken in adultery. John 7, verse 53. Verse 53 really goes with chapter 8. Verse 53 says, And every man went into his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. One day had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman, very pious now, very piously, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commands us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, testing him, that they might have something to accuse him about. And Jesus stooped down and with his finger rolled the ground as though he'd heard them not. So when they continued to ask him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped, rolled on the ground. And they who had heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up, saw none but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now let's look briefly at this story. This is the story, of course, of the woman taken in adultery. And I want you to look at four things just as you have them on your outline. Number one, the background and the setting. Chapter 7, 53 to chapter 8, verse 1. They retired for the night. Every man went to his own house. And, of course, Jesus didn't have a house. So 8-1, he went to the Mount of Olives. Now he may have gone to the Mount of Olives and then gone on down to the home of... Uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha stayed with them, which is just south of the Mount of Olives. Or he may have gone out to the Mount of Olives and spent the night in prayer. We know that he did this on occasion. So they went to their home, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, early in the morning, the next morning, he came to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Secondly, notice the action of the scribes and the Pharisees in verses 3 through 6. They hatched this diabolical plot. And the issue, my friend, is not the woman, but Jesus. See, they're not after the woman. She's just a tool. They'll toss her aside. They're after Jesus. They're going to hang Jesus on a dilemma and get to him. And they use this woman as a tool. And this is a diabolical plot of Everson. Callous, unconscionable, malicious, Diabolical plot. First, notice the step. First of all, they brought the woman to Jesus, John 8, 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say to him, they brought this woman to Jesus. This action bore all the earmarks of a deliberate plot. This wasn't by accident. The issue was not the woman, but Jesus. And their action, in their action, they were simply using her as a tool. And their action stands condemned on three counts. Three counts. First,
shameful. It was shameful. It was needless to expose this woman taken in adultery publicly. It was conscienceless and shameful of these men to do it. Secondly, there was a double standard. Where was the man? He was taken in adultery, and according to the Mosaic law, he was guilty also. And someone will say, well, the man got away. No, they say they were caught in the act. They could have gotten him just as easily as they got the woman, but they only brought the woman. And third, they were using her as a tool. So secondly, they confronted Jesus with this question. First, and there are three steps here, and it's logical. You know they've been thinking about this for five or six days. They've been hatching this plot, working on it, refining it, working out all the loopholes. Step one, they presented conclusive evidence. She was caught in the act. Verse 4, this, they said to a master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. So they presented conclusive evidence. They wanted an airtight case. And you notice that Jesus didn't deny it. Nowhere does he try to deny the fact that she was involved in adultery, and nowhere does he palliate her act. In fact, he calls it, in verse 11, a sin. Go and sin no more. So we don't want to assume from this story, as some men have, that Jesus takes a light view of adultery and a light view of extramarital affairs. He doesn't. He calls it a sin, and he doesn't palliate it, and he doesn't deny the evidence. If the truth were known, however, they probably paid the man to seduce this woman. I have no doubt, I don't have any evidence, but I have no doubt in my mind that the Pharisees and scribes hatched up this plot. They got this man, probably tall, handsome, smooth, a con artist, and here was a woman in adultery, married, probably lonely, despondent, and she's an easy prey for this man. And she falls to the con artist's uh, language, and she's caught in adultery. And they probably paid the man to seduce her. You know, anybody that's plotting to kill a man is not going to have any conscience about seducing a woman. They are getting ready to kill Jesus. So they're not going to have any conscience about having this woman seduced and using her as a tool to get Jesus. You know, the darkest crimes in history have been perpetrated under the name of religion. Whether, you know, Judaism or Catholicism or Protestantism, all of them come up from time to time with bloody hands. The worst crimes in history have been perpetrated under the name of religion. They are today, overseas, in Iran today, under the guise of religion. But, you know, we don't have any room to point our fingers in America because we've engaged in that in our national history from time to time. Then, secondly, after presenting the conclusive evidence she was caught in the act, secondly, they pointed out that the Mosaic law was clear and definite. Verse 5, now Moses in the law commanded us that such, that is the women or men taken adultery, that such should be stoned. So they pointed out to Jesus that the law was clear and definite, and it was. You read the book of Leviticus, you read Deuteronomy chapter 22. Can we take our 
keep our finger at John 8, turn over to Deuteronomy, given in Ezekiel, given in Leviticus, given a couple of times in Deuteronomy, probably the clearest one is Deuteronomy chapter 22. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 22, begin at verse 22. A man be found lying with a woman married to a husband. Then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. And who is who they put first? No, the man, both of them, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel who is a virgin be betrothed to a husband, and man find her in the city and lie with her, then he shall bring them both out the gate of the city, and you shall stone them with stones that die, that they die. The damsel, because she cried not be in the city, and the man, because he's humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among them. So the Mosaic law was clear. They were to stone them for adultery. And you know what Shakespearean aside here, it's always interesting to me that those who believe that the Christian is under the Mosaic law do not feel that this ought to be followed today. In the New Testament, the word L-A-W is always singular. If we're under the Mosaic law, we're under all of it. If we're under all of it, then we ought to stone a man or woman who's involved in adultery, which some men, to take it to its logical conclusion, believe we ought to do. That's a confusion of Israel with America, that the same principle that, is, that America is the same, stands in the same relationship, a covenant relationship, that Israel did with God. And that's simply not true. If it is, then we ought to see to it. We ought to vote, if we can, we ought to vote into existence the execution of these laws of the Old Testament, including putting to death an adulterer or an adulteress. We don't do that. But that, I think, is a logical conclusion. So they pointed out to Jesus that the law was clear and uh, definite, that this woman ought to be stoned. And then third, third, they put Jesus in the dilemma, verse, the end of verse 5. Now, what sayest thou? The end of verse 5, what sayest thou? This they said, testing him, that they might have something to accuse him. They put him in the dilemma. Why you say what dilemma? Well, now, will you look here and listen? If the Lord Jesus said, he could either say one of two things, stoner or don't stoner. Here was the dilemma, stoner or don't stoner. If he said, stone her, then not only would he disappoint a lot of disciples who looked upon him as kind and gentle, but more than that, far more than that, he would be violating the civil law of the country. Only only the uh, Romans had the right to execute a man for a capital offense. That's why the... Sanhedrin had to take Jesus to Pilate. They tried Pilate, they tried Jesus, Sanhedrin did, tried Jesus for a capital offense. But they couldn't execute him. They had to take Jesus to Pilate in order for that sentence to be carried out. And he had to approve it. And you recall, they uh, were quite doubtful that he would approve it. So they used every trick in the book. Finally saying, if you don't, then you're not a friend of Caesar. 
And that really sealed, humanly speaking, the doom of Jesus. So if he had said, do stone her, he would have been in open revolt against the law of Rome. And they could have accused him, for the Roman governor, of treason, which is exactly the accusation they brought up against him at his trial before Pilate, Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. We'll not turn there. But they could have accused him of treason if he had said, do stone her. But if he says, don't stone her, then he'll be in violation of the Mosaic Law. For the Mosaic Law said clearly, if a man or woman is caught in adultery, stone him or her. So he's caught either way go, see? He's caught either way go. If he says, do stone her, he'll violate the Roman Law. If he says, don't stone her, he'll violate the Mosaic Law. So he can't win the loser. They got him, they thought, in an airtight dilemma. This is very, very tricky. It's like the, remember Matthew chapter 22. Both the Sadducees and the uh, scribes thought they had Jesus in the corner. Remember, one of them brought him a coin. Said, uh, one of them said to him, should we pay tribute? Same kind of a circumstance. Should we pay tribute to Caesar or not? If he said don't, then they could accuse him to the government of sedition. Because the Romans watch one thing just like our United States government does. They watch taxes. They'd let anything almost take place in Palestine so long as the tax money flowed from Palestine to Rome. Now, you know, they have the same kind. Taxes not new. Taxes are not new. That's why Joseph went to Bethlehem. He went down to Bethlehem to be enrolled for taxation to put down how many in the family and how much he earned. Does that sound familiar? All right. Taxes are not new. They're old. You know, all governments tax, and all governments tend to increase their power. All governments tend to increase their power and suppress liberty. And along with that goes taxation. And long ago, Samuel warned them against this very thing. And so they tried to catch him. If he said, don't pay it, then he'll be in trouble with Rome. If he says, do pay it, then he will be anti-Israelite. He'll take a stand against the Palestinian Jews. Well, he got out of that. And he's going to get out of this one also. But it was a very tricky, seditious, dirty trick. That means that dirty tricks aren't new either. <laughs> dirty tricks aren't new. <laughs> All right, now how is the Lord Jesus going to answer it? Well, he answers it magnificently. He answers it magnificently. He puts them back on the dilemma. They put him on the dilemma. He turns around and puts them on the dilemma. Now let's read this. John 8, 16. Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. First thing he did was to stoop down, probably got on his knees, and he wrote. Matter of fact, this is the only place in the Bible where it tells us that Jesus wrote. Now, what did he write? Well, nobody knows. All I can say, he didn't write what you think he wrote. Uh, wrote. <laughs> I don't know what he wrote. Now, you know, some men said he looked up and wrote the sin of every man. I don't think so. I don't know what he wrote. Nobody knows. 
what he wrote, and it's just a, a matter of imagination that we try to conjecture. The main thing I think about it is that uh, this is a silent rebuke. You know, when a man comes along with something real hard and accuses another man, the best thing is just to remain silent for a couple of seconds. If you jump into the fray and try to answer him right away, all that does is get his hackles up a little more. But if you were silent for a couple of minutes and he's got any conscience at all, the shamefulness of the thing will begin to sink in on him. And I think Jesus was silent here to let the shamefulness of this thing sink in on these men, to let them feel shame before he answered them, getting them ready for what he was going to say. So he stooped down and wrote. Secondly, he spoke, and he spoke an unanswerable reply. He said in verse 7, So when they continued asking, they kept asking him. They asked in perfect Greek. They kept on asking him, What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Moses said, What do you say? They kept on harassing him. He got up, said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he didn't mean, now you all listening, he didn't mean what we normally think perhaps he did mean. <clears throat> Jesus did mean only the sinless can execute <clears throat> the penalty. Jesus didn't mean that unless we're sinless, we cannot execute the penalty. He didn't mean that. Because it meant that, that would make all discipline and all punishment impossible. Jesus meant the only people that can discipline or punish are sinless people. Then a father couldn't discipline his child. And a church couldn't exercise discipline. And our government couldn't exercise discipline. So he didn't mean that only the sinless can execute or only the sinless can punish. He didn't mean that. What did he mean? Well, what he meant was, let him that guilt less in this act, let him that sinless, he's talking in the context, let him that is sinless or guilt less in this act cast the first stone. Jesus turned the tables on him and put them in the lamp. Now, I hope you listen carefully. The Old Testament law said that a witness to the crime must be the first to cast the stone. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The first person to cast the stone must be the witness to the crime. That was the principle. Only witnesses can first cast the stone. That's an Old Testament principle. They appealed to the Old Testament, so he appealed to the Old Testament. And he reminded them that only person that can first cast the stone was a person who had witnessed the crime or the event. So he put them in the blood. He applied it. If, if, if they stone first, then you admit you are witnesses. If you pick up the first stone, and somebody's got to do it in this crowd, if you pick up the first stone, then you admitting that you were a witness to this thing. And you were there while the act is going on. And you were involved either in the act itself or in the enjoyment of the act. Remember that, he said. Remember that. If you pick up the first stone, 
then you're admitting that you were involved in this act of adultery, either in the act itself or in the enjoyment of observing the act. So you're implicated in the sin and the guilt. Well, they didn't want to do that. No one wanted to be first, and you know there can't be a second, so there's a first. Somebody had to pick up the first stone. So he said, if, if they stole, if you want to stole, then you're admitting that you are witnesses to this thing, and you're implicated in this adultery, either by action or by enjoyment. But, but if you say, if you deny that you were there, and you deny you were there, and you're not implicated, then you can't do what? Pick up the first stone. Somebody's got to be the first one. So here it is. Here it is. Either you stone, and by do sowing, by so doing, admit you're guilty, or if you deny that you were there, you can't pick up the first stone. Now, who's going to be the first one to pick up the stone? How many takers do you think he has? None. Why? Because the first man that steps up, the Old Testament law said that. The first man that stepped up and stoned had to be a witness to this thing. And none of them wanted to be implicated in this, in this adulterous act. None of them. So he had no taker. He turned the table. Magnificently. He turned the table on. They thought, <laughs> they thought they were going to get him. And he took the thing and turned it right around and said, all right, you quote the law to me, I'll quote it to you. Who, who's going to be the first one to cast the stone? Only someone who was a witness to the act of adultery. You were there. You were involved in it. You were either involved by the act itself with the woman, or you were there to enjoy it. You were there as a witness. And if you pick up the first stone to cast it, then you are admitting your guilt. But if you say, oh, no, I wasn't there, then you can't pick up the first stone. And there's got to be a first before there's a second. And no stones will be cast at all unless someone picks up the what? First stone, see? You know what? They were speechless. That just floored them. That floored them. He took the dilemma that they were thrusting on him. He turned it around and put them in the dilemma. They said, you've either got to stone her or not stone her. If you say stone her, then you're in trouble's role. If you say don't stone her, then you violate Moses' law. So he turned it around and said, all right. If you want to pick up a stone and kill her, then you're going to have to admit by that that you were implicated in the sin. And if you don't want to be implicated, then you can't pick up the first stone and stone the woman. Now, everybody around, all of these men were willing to be the third one. <laughs> but nobody wanted to be the first one, see, because he would have to admit his own implication. And I rather believe from the text that these Pharisees were absolutely floored by the argument of Jesus. You know something? Nobody ever caught Jesus off guard. Nobody ever caught Jesus in an argument. Now, I get caught sometimes. 
Listen, when I'm uh, teaching class and the students ask me questions, I get caught. I found out how to handle it. I usually say to them, that's an ex, you know, always commend a person. The, the less you know about it, the commend them the more. <laughs> so I tell them, I say to a student, that's an excellent question. Excellent. I want to commend you for thinking about it. And next week, I plan <laughs> to answer that. See, but Jesus never had to say any next week. He answered it right then. Out of his infinite divine knowledge, he always was able to get out of the dilemma and put them on the horns of the dilemma. And he answered this beautifully. And what happened to these men? They filed out one by one. They silent withdrawal, verse 9. Those, he stooped down and rode on the ground. He's given them time to leave. And verse 9, they heard it. Being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the elders, even unto the youngest. And Jesus is left alone, the woman standing in the midst. So after they left, Jesus lifted himself up. He saw nobody but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she said, No man. Jesus said two things. First, assurance. Neither do I. And second, a warning. Go and sin no more. Assurance and a warning. Now, what can we say about this? Jesus' handling of this, of this case. Let me summarize this. Then we'll go on to John 8, 12 to 20. Jesus' handling of this difficult and sensitive case. Very difficult and very sensitive. You know, the normal preacher, including myself, wouldn't want to be confronted with this kind of a case every day. Here was an extremely difficult and extremely sensitive case. And Jesus handled it uh, as we would expect to handle it. He handled it perfectly. How did he do it? Well, how did he handle it? May I suggest a couple of things? First, he upheld the dignity and the sanctity of the law. May I say that again? He upheld the dignity and the sanctity of the law of God. Jesus didn't say, no, we can't punish her. That law is primitive. That was given in the days when men had tribal conceptions of God, and that belongs to the dark ages of religion. Jesus didn't say that. He honored and dignified the law, and he upheld the dignity and sanctity of the law when he did not deny that she should be stoned. He just said nobody here qualifies for the job. He upheld the dignity and the sanctity of the law. He confirmed the verdict. No attempt to palliate sin. Number two, he put the guilty accusers in a dilemma. And we've already looked at that. Let him that without sin, that is, let him who is guiltless of involvement in this adulterous act let him cast the first stone. And he put them in the dilemma. If they said, well, I'll cast the stone, then by doing so, that person would admit that he was involved. Third, he pardoned the woman. He pardoned. Neither do I. Does any man condemn thee? No, Lord. Neither do I. Only he does it from a far uh, infinitely uh, greater perspective. Neither do I. They condemned her in this life. He pardoned her not only in this life, but in the next life. So he pardoned the woman. But I want you to notice, he didn't pardon her on the basis 
one, that she was guiltless, or two, she was the victim of circumstances. She may well have been, but he didn't pardon on that basis, nor on the basis that the law was too hard. He never said that at all. He wouldn't, because he gave the law. How could he who was perfect and gave the law criticize the law? So he didn't pardon on the basis that the law was too hard, or she was a poor victim of circumstance. How did he pardon? On the basis that he one day would take up her sin and bear it himself upon the cross. Romans 3, 24 to 26 tells us, Romans 3, 24 to 26 tells us that Jesus at the cross, now when you look up here, don't look at Romans 3. Romans 3, 24 to 26 tells us that Jesus at the cross uh, died at the cross first to demonstrate his righteousness for the passing over of sins that are past. What sin? The sin of Adam, the sin of Abraham, the sin of, uh, of, of uh, Moses. The man who gave the law, thou shalt not kill, was himself a murderer. And Jesus at the cross took up all the sins of all the men in the past and bore them himself at Calvary. And you know who else's sin he bore at Calvary? Who? The woman's sin. The woman's sin. And on the basis of that, on the basis that he knew he was going to pay the penalty for all sin, he said to the woman, neither do I condemn thee. How did he pardon her? He pardoned her. He forgave her. Now listen. He forgave her in such a manner as God always forgives sinners. Jesus forgave her without compromising his righteousness. When God forgives sinners, he does so on a just basis. I taped a radio broadcast last Thursday, it'll be here next Sunday, on how we are justified. We are justified by grace, by blood, by faith. Now in that second one, we are justified by blood, Romans 5, 9, I take up this very point. When it says that we are justified on by the blood of Christ, it means that God justifies us on a righteous ground. He doesn't compromise his perfect righteousness in forgiving my sin because someone else did. You know, there's a beautiful illustration of that in the New Testament. And a preacher is poor who has never preached on. And it's the story of Philemon. You remember that little story? We'll not get into it, but you go home and read it tonight. But don't read it now. Go home and read it tonight. You remember that story? Oh, um, uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave. He stole the silverware or something. Ran away from his master in Colossae all the way to Rome. The Roman police picked him up and uh, put him in prison. In the providence of God, he was put in a prison near Paul. Paul won him to faith in Jesus Christ. Then Paul said to him, after Onesimus was saved, Paul said to Onesimus, you're going to have to go back and make restitution, get things squared out. You're going to have to go back to your master and make it up. So Paul sat down and wrote a letter. That's the letter to Philemon. And in it, Paul said, uh, now, Philemon, by way of the penalty of sin, whatever James Christ knows thee, by way of guilt and penalty, whatever this woman taken in adultery owes thee, charge that to my account, I will pay it. And 
And on that basis, Jesus forgave this woman. Not that he overlooked it. Or that he overlooked my sin. Thank God he doesn't do it on that basis. Because if he overlooked it now, he might look at it in eternity. He doesn't overlook it. He bears it himself. And by bearing it himself, he takes it away forever. See, justification is a whole lot more than simply pardon. A governor can pardon a murderer and set him free. But the man is still guilty of the murder. But when Jesus Christ pardons us, he removes the guilt. So we don't have to face it in eternity, and we don't have to carry it around in our heads in the daytime and the nighttime and drive us to insanity, as it did Lady Macbeth. All right, so Jesus answered this woman, and he pardoned her, and then he counseled her, warned her against any future sin. Go and sin no more. He warned her against any future sin. May I say something? I hope you listen. Remember, he said the same thing in John chapter 5 to that man. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. This refutes the idea. We find it in some of the writers of the early church that Jesus took a low view of the law and of sin. He did not. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 30. I'll read Romans 3, 30. One, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Will you look here? Paul said, do we make empty, void the law, the Mosaic law? Do we make void the Mosaic law by the doctrine of justification by faith? That men are saved by faith apart from the works of the law. Does that make void the law? Does that make it empty? Does that uh, scratch it out? Say it was worthless. Not at all, says Paul. We established it. How was the law established? How did Jesus establish the law? Two ways. First, he kept it perfectly. He kept it perfectly. Secondly, he bore all its penalties. And Jesus Christ honored and magnified the law. He honored and magnified the law by dying for its penalty. I am a dispensationalist. Some dispensationalists fall into the habit of saying that the law is, you know, second-hand, second-rate, that Jesus kind of tolerated the law but ran it down. Not at all. The Mosaic law was given by God. It's perfect. 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 The law in England may be perfect. My mother came from England. The law of England may be perfect, but I am not under it as an American citizen. So the Mosaic law was absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. And Jesus established it and honored it by obeying it perfectly and by paying fully its penalty that it exacted upon you and me for violating. Now let's go to the discourse. John chapter 8, 12 to 58. John chapter 8, 12 to 58. Uh, chapter 12 to 20. Uh, you don't think we're going to cover all those verses, are we? 12 to 58. We come to the sixth thing in our outline. 
we come to the sixth thing in our outline. Number one was the occasion. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Number two was the divided opinion. John 7, verses 7 to 10. Number three was the dialogue. John 7, 14 to 36. Number four was the appeal. John 7, 37 to 52. Number five was the story of the woman taken in adultery. John 7, 53 to John 8, 11. Now, number six, the discourse of Christ. John 8, verses 12 to 58. The discourse of Christ. John 8, 12 to 58. Now there follows a discourse. And you'll see the stages. And there are four stages in this discourse. When you look, John 8, verse 12. The first one, John 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. That runs down to verse 20. Verse 21. Then said Jesus again to them, I go my way and you shall die in your sins. That begins the second stage in this discourse. Then in John chapter 8, verse 31, the third stage. Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, if you continue my word, then you my disciples indeed. Then John chapter 8, verse 48, begins the fourth one. Then answered the Jews and said to them, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a demon. And that runs all the way through verse 58. So there are four stages. That's the way I see it. Now, this didn't drop out of heaven, you know. That is these four stages. But I think that there are four, I believe there are four stages in, in this discourse. John 8, 12 to 20. John 8, 21 to 30, John 8, 31 to 47, and John 8, 48 to 58. Now, let's look at it very briefly, the first stage. A great claim, John 8, 12 to 20. Then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, we're just going to be able to look at that one verse, and that's all. Jesus said in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Here's the second I am. How many I am are there in the Gospel of John? How many? Seven. First one, I am the bread of life. The second one, I am the light of the world. The next one, uh, <coughs> I am the door. The next one, I am the good shepherd. The next one, um, I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. The next one, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the last one, I am the true vine. John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, two of them, I am the door. And I'm the good shepherd. John 11, 25, I'm the resurrection, the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Seven I am. Although, uh, although Jesus used that term more than that. I am. See, the background of that is that when... Um, when God commissioned Moses, 
God called Moses and commissioned him. Moses said to God, Who shall I say sent me? And God said to Moses, When they ask you that question, you say that I am sent you. And that's my name. I am. I am. Ha Yah. Ha Yah. I am. I am. And that speaks of God's self-existence. Nobody made God. God's self-existence. His eternity. The other word, Jehovah, speaks of God's redemptive character. But Elohim and Hayah, I am, speaks of God's self-existence. He is the self-existent God. He doesn't depend on anybody. He's independent of this world and transcendent. Now, I am. I am what? Well, I am the bread of life. If that's your need. You're in darkness. I am the light of the world. You're faced in death. I am the resurrection and the life. You have no power in the Christian life. I am the true vine. See? I am whatever you need. And Jesus often used it without any predicate nominative. Sometimes you put a predicate nominative. Is that the correct word grammatically? Predicate nominative. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. But sometimes he said, if you do not believe that I am, then you will die in your sin. Before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus was thereby claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. That was a claim to divine dignity. So when the soldiers came to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, uh, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now the King James has it, I am he. But if you look carefully, the he is an italic. He didn't say, I am he. He said, I am. What happened to the soldiers? Fell down dead as dead men. Didn't fall, they didn't die, but they fell down as dead men. See, he said, I am a claim to divine dignity, a claim to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, here's the second I am. I am the light of the world. Let's look at this quickly. We'll be through. Notice three things. I am the light of the world. Notice three things. First, a claim. Second, a condition. And third, a consequence. A claim, a condition, and a consequence. Claim, a condition, and a consequence. That's three points. That's the only way you can have a sermon. Three points. <laughs> I, a claim, a condition, and a consequence. I, a claim, I am the light of the world. The condition, he that follows me. And the consequences, too, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, let's look at this and we'll be through. First one is a claim. I am the light of the world. That's a staggering claim. You know, we read the Bible. We've read the Bible so long that familiarity breeds contempt, and we tend simply to roll over these things. But think of it. What would you think if I got up one night in class and said, I want you all to listen to this. I am the light of the world. 
what would you think? You say, well, you better take him to Bolivar. I am the light of the world. What would you think if I got up one night and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. Why, you would think that probably so that I was insane. But Jesus got up and said these things. And the disciples accepted them. And I read them and I accept them. I say to myself, why, they rightly belong to Jesus. They rightly belong to Jesus. I have no trouble with them. But they're staggering. These claims that Jesus meant are staggering. Someone has said, wouldn't it be wonderful luxury if we could come to the New Testament for the first time with a blank mind, having never read it before, and read it with all its wonder and its glory, with all the divinity of the claims that Jesus made. These are staggering. He said, I am the light of the world. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean by light? Well, we study the Bible, to boil it down and to say it quickly, light speaks of two things. It speaks of truth, and it speaks of holiness. When the Bible ascribes light to God, and when it speaks of us as light, it embraces two ideas. It embraces, first of all, truth, and secondly, embraces holiness. It embraces truth. You know, we speak of light as truth. What does the press scimitar have on its little, uh, that masthead? Doesn't it have that um, lighthouse? And the old ones used to say, give them light and they shall find the way or something like that. What does that mean, light, in that context? It means truth. And the Bible, light speaks of truth as over against falsehood and error. <clears throat> but secondly, light also speaks of purity and holiness. What did uh, John say in 1 John chapter 1? Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. God is... You not read that? God is light, and in him is no... What is darkness there? Sin. And light is holiness and purity. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now, you listening? You listening? Jesus said, I am the author. I give to you. I offer truth and holiness. I offer you truth for life and holiness for conduct. I am the light of the world. I am the source of truth and the source of holiness and purity. Intellectual light, truth, moral light, holiness. And I'll provide for you illumination and guidance. Secondly, what's the condition? What is the condition to enjoy me? If any man do what? Follow me. Now, what's involved in following Jesus? Well, essentially two things. First of all, trusting the person of the light, trusting the person of the light, and submitting to his guidance. And I, may I suggest, you don't have time, read Numbers chapter 11 about the cloud in the Old Testament who gave Israel guidance. And following the light involves trusting in the Savior and submitting to his guidance as the Lord of our lives. And then what are the consequences, quickly? Shall not walk in 
That means I won't walk in ignorance and I won't walk in sin. Shall not walk in darkness, but positively shall have the light of light. Now, what is that? I'll have the light of light. Two things. I'll have holiness for conduct and I'll have truth for guidance. If, if any man follows me, he'll not walk in error or sin. Darkness or, or he'll not walk in darkness, error or sin, but shall have the light of life. He'll have truth for guidance and holiness for conduct. I'm the light of the world. Now I want to close by asking you to turn to one verse. John chapter 12. Here is an eminently important verse. And it's supremely important for Memphis, Tennessee, and for the South, the Bible Belt. John chapter 12, verse 36. Here's the great watershed in the Gospel of John. John 12, 36. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be sons of light. These things spoke Jesus, departed and hide himself from men. John 12, 36. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be sons of light. Now, what are the three relationships to light in John 12, 36? What are them? They're not on my face. Now, what are they? Now, that's the second one. What's the first one? Have the light. What's the second one? And what's the third one? Become sons of the light or children of the light, sons of the light. Have the light, believe on the light, and become sons of the light. Who's going to enter heaven? Only those who are sons of the light. It's not enough to have the light. I must believe in the light if I want to be a son of the light. How many people do you think it's Memphis? have the light. Well, I would say everyone. You know, you can turn on the radio, turn on television, you don't go to church, radio or television, Bibles everywhere. Everybody has access to the light. Is everybody a Christian? No. Because although I may have the light, unless I believe on the light, I do something about it. I'll not be a son of the light. And I would say the great tragedy in America today, the great tragedy in the South, and probably the great tragedy in Memphis, is that there are a whole lot of people, hundreds, hundreds, and thousands of people, who have the light, who attend church, who read the Bible, who memorize scripture, who know the doctrine, who are orthodox. They have the light, but they never personally believe and appropriate the light, and therefore they're not sons of it's not enough to possess the light to have it. I must believe it or want to be a son of God. The last statement Jesus said in public in the whole Gospel of John, and it's a very sobering subject. 